So how much time do you spend thinking about death? Old age, car accidents, the death of yourself, the death of loved ones. You know, many, dis- uh, many uh, distinguishers between humanity and, and uh, death is, thinking about death is one of the many distinguishers between animals and humanity, right? Animals don't just sit and contemplate their own death. We might share an instinct for survival, but animals don't sit and think, hey, maybe I'm going to die today, or, or what's the, when's the day that you know, a lion's going to come and eat me? They're just not sitting around doing that. That's a human thing. And in that same vein, we come up with mechanisms to cope with the imminence of death. In a recent article in The Atlantic called What Good is Thinking About Death, author Julie Beck sets out to discover how thinking about death affects our behavior. And she interviews a variety of social scientists and experts who have spent long hours conducting tests and studying the subject. The experts that she interviewed range from morticians to psychology professors. Uh, They had various nuances in their opinions, but they all agreed on one thing. What makes death unique among life's other stressors is that it cannot be solved. Right? Relationship problems, sickness, injury, loss, financial trouble, general dissatisfaction with life, whatever it may be, can be changed or at least accommodated in some way, right? But we can never really resolve the fact that we're going to die. Because death is unique, we respond to it uniquely. The article goes on to talk about the different ways that we respond when we're faced with thinking about death, when we drive by a graveyard maybe, or lose a loved one, or encounter a near-death experience. The most typical response is to actually push those thoughts away, to think about something else. One expert named Sheldon Solomon says that even children do this. He quotes a 1960s study of one child where he says, He swam up and down his bath, and he played with the possibility of never dying. I don't want to be dead ever. I don't want to die. After his mother told five-year-old Richard he wouldn't die for a long time, the little boy smiled and said, That's all right. I've been worried, and now I can get happy. And then he said, I'd like to dream about going shopping and buying things. So American, right? Does that sound like any of you? Shop therapy? Solomon says that our coping mechanisms aren't much more sophisticated than that of children. He says Americans are arguably the best in the world at burying existential anxieties under a mound of french fries and a trip to Walmart to save a nickel on a lemon and a (laughs) flamethrower. But distractions only go so far, right? Even when we've distracted ourselves from our thoughts of death, they still unconsciously remain. And that's actually uh, where it mostly affects our lives, psychology professors say. One psychology professor says that it's in these times that we're most affected and the effects of death actually don't bring out the best in us. See, the only way to cope with mortality is to search for things that will give us immortality. Only immortality, only immortality can solve the problem of death. So beyond the obvious refuges of religion, uh, a lot of the time this is actually found in a non-literal immortality. Investing in something that's going to last beyond our lives. Being part of something bigger than ourselves. 
And while looming mortality uh, can move us to acts of kindness like giving to charity or helping others, we can also search for immortality by clinging too tightly to our culture or clinging too tightly to our family or, or legacy, the article says. So I'd imagine this is where things like toxic nationalism come from, right? This so-called death anxiety. In fact, they say that when death is on the back of our minds, we're harsher than when it's on the forefront. They actually tested this out on judges. A group of 22 judges who were tasked with setting the bail for alleged prostitutes were involved in this study. A subset of the judges were asked to describe their death in detail on a survey beforehand. And it turns out that those who had had to describe their death, who had death right on the forefront of their mind and then to the back of their mind as they went to do the sentencing, they, uh, sent, they gave uh, set bail at an average of nine times higher than the other judges. <laughs> death anxiety makes us mean. Not just mean, but sometimes it makes us destructive. Sheldon Solomon says, If you look at the problems that currently befall humanity, we can't get along with each other. We're destroying the environment. There's rampant economic instability by virtue of mindless, conspicuous consumption. They're all malignant manifestations of death anxiety running amok. So death anxiety running amok. Does anyone feel that? We are death anxious people running amok. How did we get here? How do we get out our normal coping mechanisms of shop therapy or preservation of the olden days or even anxiety-driven kindness can't solve the problem of death. A legacy won't overcome death. Even if you could drink from the fountain of youth or experience reincarnation, you'd still be stuck in a death-anxious world. Even thoughts of life in heaven as an immaterial blob or a cherub on a cloud don't really bring too much comfort to me. I'm not sure about you. If I'm going to live forever, I want to be me forever. How did we get here and what's the way out? That's what we're going to talk about today. We believe in the resurrection of the body. That's our line from the Apostles' Creed today. Pay attention to that word, body. To be human is to have a body. God has something to say about that. There's divine intention behind where you come from, who you are, and where you're going. We're going to look at three things today as it pertains to the fate of humanity. We're going to look at what was, what's to come, and what to do now. So what was the original design for humanity, and what's it going to look like in the end? And finally, what do we do here and now? So what was, what's to come, and what do we, this death-anxious people, do here and now? Let's start with what was. You know, you're all going to be experts on the first chapters of uh, Genesis because pretty much every sermon we go back there, but we have to go back there to understand. Uh, you're, it's a good thing. I mean, God's word is deep, and we talk about uh, these chapters. We could talk about these chapters every Sunday and plumb even deeper into the depths of the scriptures. We need to keep going back because this is our history, and if you don't know your history, you won't understand your present or your future. And we're going to dive a little deeper into how God actually created humanity this time, who he made us to be. So look with me at Genesis 1, first page of the first book of the Bible, first verse. God says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the, day, the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And now this pattern continues for the following five days. God says, let there be and there was. From the formation of land to the emergence of animals, let there be and there was. God speaks creation. And then there's a change in the pattern from let there be to let us make. Look with me at 126, first half of that verse. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So let there be, let there be, let there be. Now let us make. And not just let us make, but let us make in our own image. Let us not make something, but someone like us. And verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Chapter 2 gets into the details of the when and how of this creation. Uh, but look at this aerial view of the creation of humanity. Male and female in the image of God. Against the backdrop of let there be something, let us make someone is vibrant. This creation is different from plants. It's different from animals. This creation is in the image of the creator himself. Before another word is even written, this creation materializes with honor, with dignity, with beauty, and weighty, weighty value. Simply on the basis of the words image. He says, let's create man in our image and likeness. Someone like God. Someone who's going to reflect the nature of this creative God who in kindness wills these creatures into existence. So he says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and then the last part, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The image and the likeness of the creator God comes with responsibility and authority over his creation. And we see that further down in this chapter, uh, in verse 28, it says, and God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We call this the creation mandate. God has given a task to his image bearers to multiply, to fill the earth with more image bearers. Because more image bearers means more life. It means more of the truth beauty and goodness of God reflected to the earth, more thriving. Chapter 2 talks about how Adam was placed in this luscious garden, given the task of cultivating life and enjoying the literal fruit of his labor. God sees that it's not good for him to be alone, so he creates the woman to help him with this mandate, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to cultivate life. The garden was never meant to stay an isolated green patch on the earth. It was meant to spread God created it, and he even planted this garden, Genesis 2 says. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God created it, and these reflectors of God were tasked with spreading his creation. 
And the most amazing part was that God himself was in that garden. To the point where the Bible says Adam and Eve heard him walking, heard his footsteps in the cool of the day. God himself. This is beautiful. Stop and take that in. This is the opening of human history. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's how this chapter closes, reflecting the image in innocence. This is what was. The next chapter opens like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. So another voice is introduced, right? And, and this is the word of God. This is truth, but this is also narrative literature. It's a story. So take in the drama of it all. That's the author's intention. The air just changed in the story, right? There's this other voice introduced, this beast of the field who has crept into the garden. And I want you to remember the mandate that God gave the man and the woman, his image bearers. They're tasked with subduing the earth. They're tasked with spreading, cultivating life, cultivating this garden. They're tasked with judging and removing and crushing anything that would harm the garden. And that's what they should have done to this serpent. So this serpent creeps in and he says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's right, right? Last chapter, God planted this garden. He gave them every tree except that one. No, he didn't restrict the tree of life. We find out later that a bite from that lands you everlasting life. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So she knows the command of God, right? She's not ignorant. She even adds an extra restriction that he never gave, or at least that the Bible says he didn't give. She knows that she, uh, she says she can't even touch it, yet she eats it when she hears that she can be like God. And so does her husband. The two most unique and godlike creatures against a backdrop of animals don't feel godlike enough, so they eat fruit that an animal beneath them in every sense of the word tells them to eat so that they could be like God. This is so tragic. This is the moment of the fall of humanity. This is where innocence was exchanged for depravity. And notice the first thing they do is sew fig leaves together to cover part of the image because they're ashamed. They hear God walking in the garden, and instead of delight, they, they have fear and shame, and they hide from him. When he asks them why they did what they did, the man blames his wife, and the wife blames the serpent. Is that not death anxiety? The death anxiety that we just talked about? death avoidance. They were told they're going to die if they eat this fruit. And the first thing they do is throw each other under the bus. And long story short, they resemble the snake more than they resemble God, and he expels them from the garden. Now, he doesn't kill them. 
He mercifully expels them. He gives them clothes made out of animal skins. This is the first death. The first death is the death of an animal. And I heard a paraphrased quote by a guy named uh, Dr. Douglas Green from Westminster Seminary. He makes a powerful observation. He says, the putting on of new attire implies a change of status. If someone puts on a cape, they're a superhero, right? When a woman puts on a bridal gown, she becomes a bride. The previously glorious humans have a change in status as they leave the garden. They're now more like the animals they're supposed to rule over than like God. And long story short, they resemble, yeah, long story short, they bear the image of God, uh, but now it's marred and it's cloaked. They still carry uh, this mandate to make the earth thrive, but the ground is now cursed. They're corrupt. The battle is more than uphill from within and from without. So still bearing the image, but a marred image. And this carries through to all of humanity. Death entered at the fall. In Adam, all die. Genesis 5.3 talks about when Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. Notice the parallelism. Still in the image of God, but an inherited image and likeness. In fact, the first son of Adam was born, uh, who was born was named Cain, and he killed his brother Abel, the very first murder in the Bible. Cain's three times great-grandson is the first polygamist in the Bible. Some people think that the Bible condones polygamy. No, it doesn't. Polygamy is the result of the fall of humanity. It's part of this legacy. Now, this sermon is supposed to be about the resurrection, right? But if we skip past the beginning of the story, who we are, how we got here, the whole thing will make little sense. We need to know that we were created in the image of God, intended to reflect his glory, and intended to be with him in communion. We need to know that we've been marred by sin, and that we mar by sin, and that we're destined for death, the same as our first parents. Just lean into that death anxiety for a minute as we talk about this. Where do we go from here, right? What's God's plan for this mess? And that gets us to what's to come. We looked at uh, what was and we asked, how did we get here? Now we're going to look at scripture and see what God says about what's to come and how we get there. If we were to continue through the entire Old Testament, we would see this pattern of sin spiraling out of control, destroying humanity, destroying nations, destroying God's people. And then we would see God constantly stepping in to restore, to bless, to judge, to bring order, and to promise a day when it would be fully and finally repaired. Before sending Adam and Eve out of the garden, God made a declaration that a son would come from Eve and that this son would once and for all crush the serpent's head, that he would succeed where they failed in expelling the serpent, also known as Satan, once and for all. Flashing way, way, way forward to the New Testament, God sends his own son, Jesus, the new Adam. In Colossians 1.15, Paul calls him the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews calls him the exact imprint of his nature, sinless. Nancy Guthrie in her book, Even Better Than Eden, says this, He who bore the perfect image became marred, not by his own sin, but by ours. Isaiah wrote, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance that his form, uh, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
On the cross, our king, the one who was perfect in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, took upon himself our rebellion, our filthiness, our foolishness. The one who was life itself entered into death. So Jesus is slain like an animal. Kind of like that first animal that was slain due to sin, right? To make Adam and Eve's clothes. But he's slain for the sin of all humanity, for our sin. Yet to have our life hidden in Christ is to, to be more like God, to represent God more, not to dim the image of God. And even though Jesus was killed, he didn't stay dead, right? He was raised on the third day. The so-called unsolvable problem of death was resolved when he came out of the tomb alive. That's what we just celebrated last week. And the hope of the gospel is that because of this, there's resurrection for you and resurrection for me. Jesus made it possible for the image of God to be restored in you and to be restored in me. Jesus was the first resurrected human being in a new glorified body. His friends didn't even recognize him in particular Bible passages. Jesus was uh, the first glorified human, but he was still fully God, still fully man, yet imaging the creator more vibrantly than ever. Jesus was the first, but he won't be the last, right? In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Paul calls him the first fruits, just the beginning of a harvest that's to come. In Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus is the firstborn among many siblings. If you've placed your trust in Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, that's you. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, Paul says this, The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so are all those who are of the dust. That's us. And as is the man of heaven, so are all those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be like him. And even now, God is recreating us, conforming us to the image of Jesus, the truest image of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians verse 3, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So for the believer, change is happening. We're actually regaining our full and expression of humanity, a preview of what's to come. The Spirit of God is transforming us. Clint's gonna, Clint talked about uh, the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago. The Spirit of God transforms us. Listen to what Paul says about the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit in Christians. This is Romans 8, 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And listen to this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God's spirit dwells 
in us. What does this look like for our lives? It should look like the fruit of the Spirit uh, seen in Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead is working these things in us. It's not of us. It's not because we're better than others. It's not because we've willed it to be so. And we're certainly not experts in these areas. It's the work of the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. He's bringing our dead hearts to life. May our lives be characterized by the fruit of the spirit of God. This gradual work of God is lifelong, and sometimes it's slower than we'd like, huh? But the resurrection, the raising of our bodies from the grave is anything but drawn out. And the transformation isn't gradual at all. When that day comes, listen to what Paul says in the beginning uh, of 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. He's writing to Christians here, and he's telling them that when Christ comes, not everyone will be asleep. He means dead. But all of us will be changed in a moment, a moment so brief that it's like the twinkling of an eye. We'll be raised imperishable, clothed with immortality. Remember, researchers said the problem of death is that it can only be resolved by immortality. Jesus conquered death, and we will be clothed with immortality. And we look forward to an instantaneous transformation into a vibrant, unveiled, unmarred, and immortal image of God. This transformation brings us into unveiled, unmarred, and eternal communion with God Himself. Even better. Eden. And Clint's going to talk about that next week when he talks about everlasting life, what that's going to look like. I'm not going to go into that in detail uh, this Sunday. But the main thing is that sin and death will be eradicated. 1 Corinthians 15.4, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We await a day when the sting of death will be removed. Some of you might be wondering, if we die today, where do we go in the meantime, right? Do we just lay underground waiting for this day when Jesus resurrects us, when he returns to judge the living and the dead? What about heaven? You know, people want to go to heaven, right? Aren't we supposed to be cherubs on a cloud somewhere, just chilling out? No. No cherubs or clouds. Uh, But the Bible teaches that before Christ returns, all believers who die will be with God in heaven in a conscious, immaterial, non-bodily state. Here's a quote from an article that Clint actually wrote that I found helpful when I was preparing this sermon. It's called, I hope I don't go to heaven when I die. It's intriguing, right? Well, 
We'll put it in the sink this week for you to read. He says, death is the separation of the immaterial, your soul, from the material, your body. God created humanity with bodies and souls. The soul is not more precious than the body, nor is the body more precious than the soul. A person's soul is not the real you. The real you is what you have right now, body and soul. When a person dies, the body separates from the soul. This is why death is such a formidable enemy. Death defiles humanity of the dignity that God created us to have. Death tries to uncreate us. So not only is the resurrection of the body better than Eden, it's better than heaven. God created us embodied, and where death tries to uncreate us, God will recreate us in an even more astounding body. Imagining what that would look like, C.S. Lewis guessed that if we were to encounter our resurrected selves, we'd be tempted to bow down and worship. We will be fully embodied humans. We'll be us, rid of sin, rid of death, inhabiting a physical place, a new renovated earth where the peace of God reigns. And again, I'm sure Clint's going to talk more about that next week. But this is our hope. This is the hope of Christianity. This is the only hope for humanity. Apart from this, there is no hope. Last time I talked about this, in John 5, 21, it's written that all will be raised, yes, but some to a resurrection of life and others to a resurrection of judgment. Apart from faith in Christ, apart from accepting his death for your sins, there is no resurrection to life. Yet Jesus turns no one away who comes to him. John 6, 37. So if you haven't yet come to him, what a savior, what a God who promises acceptance to those who come to him and resurrection to life for all who come. This is why the resurrection of the body is in the creed. There's no Christianity without the resurrected Christ, and there's no Christianity without the resurrected church. The church has a set and unchanging trajectory. Romans 8.30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified is to have the image of God 100% restored because he alone is glorious. Brothers and sisters, God knew and chose you. He called you. He cleared you of the charges of sin, and he will raise you from the dead, glorified in an imperishable body. So what does that mean for us today? Right? We're not living in what was Eden. We're not living in what's to come, glory, in Romans 8:19 Paul says that creation is groaning for the day when God's children will be revealed. He says we also groan within ourselves. He says we're eagerly awaiting for adoption, we're, we're eagerly awaiting for the redemption of our bodies. Is anyone groaning for relief? Anyone ready for the redemption of their body? Anyone feel like time's going too fast? Kids are growing up too fast. Have you been blindsided by the aging process? I've heard people say, when I look in the mirror, I don't recognize myself. This isn't me. Anyone stuck in patterns that have haunted you for your entire life that you just can't seem to shake, but they're destroying your life? How about those of us who are surrounded by death or terrified by death, whether it's the death of ourselves, the death of our loved ones, health problems, 
or just even knowing that there's a day when our hearts will stop beating? How do we as Christians deal with our own death anxiety? Is there anything for us now? Yes. That's the thing. The resurrection is later, but it's for now. This is why the New Testament writers mention it so often. Don't underestimate the power of true hope. And when I say hope, I don't want you to think about the casual and often erroneous way that we use the word hope in our daily lives. Like, I hope I can find a new job. I hope I get married one day. I hope I don't get hit by a car, right? We're really talking more about desires than hope when we talk like that. We're talking more about our wishes. But God's hope is more than a desire. It's more than a wish. It's a promise. And it's a promise that has power behind it. We have a living God and a living hope. 1 Peter 3, the second half of this verse says, He, God, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have real hope today. 1 Corinthians 15 is the most detailed passage on the resurrection. It's where a lot of this sermon came from. And Paul ends this long talk on the resurrection by saying this, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The resurrection should give you hope. And that hope should fuel you as you make your way through this life. Not just to be able to sustain, but to be immovable. To excel in the Lord's work. Don't let your death anxiety immobilize you, destabilize you, or sweep you away. Let death make you think of resurrection life. And let resurrection life motivate you toward love, toward living like the resurrected one, right? The first fruits. By nature of your hope, you have comfort. And that's something a lot of people are looking for. 2 Corinthians 1.4 or 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And now it's not lost on me, and it shouldn't be lost on you that I'm preaching this a week after nearly 300 worshipers who are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus were murdered in Sri Lankan churches. Children, like the children here, who one pastor described, were drinking water at the entrance of the church the way they always do after Sunday school. And that's when the bomb exploded, when and where it exploded. I listened to that pastor recall the events, and they were horrific. And if we, if we call them brothers and sisters, then we grieve uh, with them as their brothers and sisters as they suffer. Those who have died and those who continue to face death and its effects daily. What is there for them? Like really, what else is there for them? What alternative hope can the world offer them? Shopping? Facebook? What distraction is strong enough to push through an experience with death like that? It's in these moments that the sting of death is beyond distraction. Have you ever been there? 
And it's in these moments that we press into real hope because the God that they worshiped, the God that they worship today, they haven't worshiped in vain. The God they worshiped is a promise keeper. The resurrection they celebrated is theirs and no one can take it from them. And however brutally they were cut down, he will raise them up on the last day, radiantly reflecting his image. And we'll sing with them. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.